0: The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning.
1: Welcome back to Utah Symphony, Utah Opera's Ghost Light podcast, a behind-the-curtain look at the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson.
0: And I'm Jeff Counts. On this episode of the Ghostlight Podcast, we'll be talking about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, doing one of our famous deep dives, Carol, although this is water with a lot of fish already in it. People it's know about true. this piece, but I do think there's a ton to talk about with it. It's probably going to be hard to keep this to a drive length, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, well, I mean, just trying to find the sources and narrow them down to the most pithy facts exactly. was a real challenge.
0: So a few stats, Carol, before we dig into this. Beethoven wrote this piece predominantly between 1822 and 1824, although there is some scholarship to suggest that he'd been thinking about it as far back as 1790, which is interesting because Schiller's poem was produced just five years before that. But let's just say that this occupied the majority of his time in the last couple of years of his life. It was premiered on May 7th of 1824. And as I alluded to, Friedrich Schiller's poem, Ode to Joy, written in Published in 1785 and then revised again in 1808, was the principal material for the last movement. That's the stuff that everybody knows.
1: Another thing that maybe not everyone knows is this is one of the first big symphonies to feature vocal.
0: Oh, absolutely! And I think no one had ever done that before. In that way, he predates Mahler much more than he predates. Brahms. I think this, this was a signal to the 20th century in a very big way, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about choral music and symphonies as we dig into this, but you're right. This, that was one of the many groundbreaking things about this piece was the use of voice and chorus in the finale. He, he premiered the piece in Vienna, but that wasn't always his intention. He was very frustrated with Vienna at the end of his life. He found it to be a place obsessed with popcorn music, the the operas of Rossini. He didn't find the Viennese audiences to be very serious, at least not serious or appreciative enough of his work. So he had been courting Berlin for the premiere of this symphony. And when people in Vienna found out about that, a letter writing campaign. They begged him to actually do the premiere there. So in a way, he sort of tricked Vienna into showing him the love that they had not been in the previous couple of years. But imagine a world where this piece doesn't premiere in Vienna. Does the famous story about the premiere happen? The story about the applause? Tell that one.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I think it's it's an obvious, it's a well-known fact that Beethoven was deaf. Yeah. For the last few years of his life, completely deaf. And so he would actually conduct, and I'm using air quotes as I say that word, his works towards the end, but the they, in, in, in this concert in particular, they had a, an actual conductor who could hear what was happening, who was the conductor that everyone was supposed to pay attention to. Beethoven would sort of indicate the tempi and then then one was to ignore whatever else Beethoven did.
0: Yeah. It, it was the Kapellmeister of the house. It was, right. It was Michael Umlauf that so, did the actual conducting of the orchestra.
1: So there was a, a – a, grew a quartet of soloists, and uh, during the applause, Beethoven was still facing the orchestra. This is the the famous story. So he could not hear the applause, of course. The contralto, by the name of Carolina Unger, gently turned him around so that he could see, first of all, that the crowd was going well with applause, and they were also waving handkerchiefs wildly. And uh, he was able to take in the effect that his music had, thanks to her kindness, to just sort of gently allow him to watch that.
0: It really was a tale of two premieres, wasn't it, though? Because this, as successful and as magical as that moment was for him, the repeat performance was a financial and artistic disaster. And it was one of the maybe the last concert of his career. And it was a hell of a way to go out for somebody like him. And I think between those two performances, there has been built a huge body, a huge literary body of critical opinion about those pieces. And before we talk about the piece itself, I want you to read a couple of those, Carol, because there are some absolutely, I think, hilarious comments yeah, about this you know, piece from contemporary, contemporaneous sources.
1: So my source for this criticism is an, a volume called The Lexicon of Musical Invective. Critical Assaults on Composers Since Beethoven's Time, compiled by Nicholas Sloninsky, who was a – really, it's sort of a, a – what do you call it? A, a polymath, you yep. know, and he died yep. at the age of 101 having put his stamp on the musical record.
0: One of our greatest writers on music. And if, if you love music and don't have this book on your shelf, remedy that soon. But
1: So I'll just give you some pithy bits. And those of you who are writing criticism and listening to us today – Get your thesauruses going because I'll tell you, 19th century critics, they had vocabulary at the disposal that we don't even imagine. And so I also just want to say, you know, in music history, we sometimes think that everybody liked everything or you hear sometimes stories about opera premieres that weren't great. But you never think about someone accusing Beethoven of being out there. You know, we talk about honk squeak music in the 20th and 21st century, but... You know, 19th century music was new at one point as well. Absolutely. So uh, not everyone loved it like we do today. So here's from the Harmonicum of 1825 in London paper in April of 1825. We find Beethoven's Ninth Symphony to be precisely one hour and five minutes long. A fearful period indeed, which puts the muscles and lungs of the band and the patience of the audience to a severe trial. The last movement, a chorus, is heterogeneous, What relation it bears to the symphony, we could not make out. And here, as well as in other parts, the want of intelligible design is too apparent.
0: Ouch.
1: Ouch. It's rough, really rough. Uh, Let's see what was another one that I wanted to see. Uh, Oh, here's one. Uh, Beethoven, this extraordinary genius, was completely deaf for nearly the last 10 years of his life, during which his compositions have partaken of the most incomprehensible wildness. His imagination seems to have fed upon the ruins of his sensitive organs. And then we'll end with this one, and I'll kind of shorten it because it's quite long. This is from the Daily Atlas, Boston, February of 1858. If, oh, sorry, I misread that. February of 1853. Someone needs glasses. If the best critics and orchestras have failed to find the meaning of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, we may well be pardoned if we confess our inability to find any goes on to talk about the individual movements. And it says, we can sincerely say that rather than study this last work for beauties which do not exist, we had far rather hear the others where beauties are plain.
0: I mean, obviously, we're reading stuff from a range of time that's much longer than just the two weeks between the two premieres. But it, it, it baffles me that that far into the nineteenth century, people still had negative opinions of that oh, no. of that variety about this music. I mean, what about this one Carol that Verdi apparently said way later in eighteen seventy eight? He said, apparently, the Alpha and Omega is Beethoven's ninth symphony marvelous in the first three movements very badly set in the last no one will ever approach the sublimity of the first movement but it will be an easy task to write as badly for voices as in the last movement <laughs>
1: it's i mean many a soprano has complained bitterly about the tessitura which yeah. is where the voice sort of lies most of the time not the range yeah. which is the highest to lowest but the tessitura of this is b- terrifying yeah. To many a soprano, and I forgot really a good one. I'll just say this: what I, I want to go back to this whole tessitura concept. But uh, Louis Spohr, who was a a little bit later composer, he said, "I confess freely that I could never get any enjoyment out of Beethoven's last works. I must include, and then he goes on to say he has to include, but he says about the Ninth Symphony, the fourth movement of which seems to me so ugly, in such bad taste, and in the conception of Schiller's ode, so cheap." that I cannot even now understand how such a genius as Beethoven could write it down. It,
0: it's painful to read these things because it just does not match contemporary opinion. about.
1: Absolutely not. Yeah, the, the tessitura thing of the voices is interesting because uh, there's a sort of a, a a running joke, and I I apologize to all Contralto Medzi who sing this. The uh, soprano wails away in the, the top of the staff. The tenor has a very... Pithy solo to the Turkish March music. Mm -hmm. Uh, The bass has a wonderful recitative, and the the poor mezzo just kind of lies around between D above middle C and A. And so the joke is that you get a great check because you get paid the same as everyone else. Usually, usually the you're not paid by the note. You're paid as a quartet equal amounts, and you just wear a beautiful gown Mm -hmm. or an amazing trouser suit or whatever is your. Your pleasure and yeah. you take the same check home as these people that are b- bleeding <laughs> <Yeah>. over
0: <laughs> the work. Not having to pull out a high B flat uh, like, the, like the soprano is. Yeah, it's, a,
1: it's a pretty – I mean, it's always amazing when you actually have a mezzo that has the pipes to actually be – to carry in this amazing texture. To
0: actually be heard and to be part of and it.
1: And that's yeah. – I mean, I mean, many fabulous mezzos have essayed this work and a beautiful. It's just not written in a – range that is the most, uh, I'm, I'm using my thesaurus, the most salutorious for the Medzi.
0: So many of the critics, Verdi included, attacked the last movement, which I think is interesting because that is the movement that today defines the piece for most what listeners.
1: many people are waiting for.
0: Most of them don't know much about the first three movements. It's really the last movement that they're waiting for. In fact, I'm not sure why more orchestras don't just play that by itself. I'm glad Pesity. they don't. Oh, yeah. I'm glad they don't. That wouldn't do the piece any justice, particularly because of the really interesting way that movement references the previous movements. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that about it. But I often wonder what Schiller would have thought about the setting of his poem. I said he wrote it in 1795 and then he revised, sorry, 1785. And then he revised it in 1808. And that revision is the one that Beethoven used for his stuff. Um, but Schiller... Died in the early 19th century. Yeah, he so a,
1: he, a, a, he, known for a very short life. Yeah,
0: he would not have – he wasn't around in 1824 by a long shot. And he was quoted once saying, because he looked back upon this poem, not with great fondness. And he actually said once that it was not of value for the world or – For the art of poetry,
1: right? That was what he said to a friend. He wrote after you wrote this poem. He said it might be. It might be essentially. You said maybe we two are going to like it, It but no one else is going to care. Exactly.
0: Exactly, and that's
1: amazing because I think you can all those of you who are listening who know anything or have ever heard the piece know that it's become an anthem for universal humanity. Right. So it obviously means something to everyone. On. The planet who's heard it. It's very
0: joyous. You know, it's very celebratory with its joy, thou shining sparks of God, and it's be embraced all ye millions. It's got that kind of really heavy hearted, not open hearted.
1: Yeah, and high minded.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think, what do you think about the way Beethoven said it in this piece? Because obviously that theme. That theme that he ended up with at the at the that where where it's first stated after the Turkish Mertz when we first get the theme of the fourth movement, it is something he really struggled over. His notebooks show that he had some two hundred iterations of that before he settled on the one that we know today. So obviously he wanted to get it right. Do you think he did?
1: I think its universal appeal is in that it's singable. Absolutely, it lies in a range. I mean. It, those of you who are churchgoers will know that it's entered the hymnody, yep. and it's in your hymnal because it's a range that average people can do. It's in the Suzuki book one, I think, for violinists. It's a tune that lies in a good key for baby violinists. It may not be book one, but it may be. It's one of the early Suzuki violin books. So it's a tune that is so simple, and I think that's what makes it amazing. I just – one more quote from a, a critic – This particular newspaper in Rhode Island mentioned that it opened with eight bars of a commonplace theme, very much like Yankee Doodle.
0: The Ode to Joy theme. yeah. Yes, the Ode to Joy
1: theme. And I think that sounds like a criticism, but in a way, I think it's the beauty of the tune that everyone can access it, everyone Mm -hmm. can produce it from their own vocal cords without difficulty. We can't sing the bass recitative. We can't sing the tenor solo. But that one tune that we first hear in the woodwinds in the fourth movement, and then we hear eventually breaking out into the huge all the forces at once. It's a tune that we all know and love, and it means something to I think everyone who hears it. Well, it certainly something positive. It, it
0: meant something to Brahms because he 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 doesn't mimic it, but he certainly builds on it in his first, his first symphony, which you know we've talked about being the tenth symphony of Beethoven on many different occasions. But I I wonder what you think as an opera person. And I don't mean to pigeonhole you because you certainly know a lot about symphony music, too. But as an opera professional, do you think the vocal writing is good? I I think the choral writing is excellent. I love the recet for the bass. I think it's really quite operatic, actually, maybe more of an oratorio. But I do think the writing is idiomatic, with maybe the exception of the mezzo, who seems to get short shrift. But what do you think of the vocal writing?
1: You know, I think it's exciting because it taxes the voices, I don't want to speak for all singers. I don't want to speak for all choirs. I'll just give some opinions based on my experiences in rehearsals with choirs or coachings with singers. I think that uh, most sopranos, as I said, most sopranos will agree that the tessitura, the main range of the piece, the main where it lies, is challenging. I think the chorus would deeply agree Uh, One of my bass friends is in the chorus that's preparing for our uh, November 3rd and 4th performances. And he is a true bass and really regrets that Beethoven chose to use many a F sharp above middle C for the (laughs) basses to sing. But in a way, I think the discomfort, you don't want someone to sound strained who is singing this. We don't want to be pained by the sounds coming out of their throats, either the soloist or the chorus. But when you get the whole... of the, diff, the, the the extreme vocal writing plus the thrilling orchestration, I think. I think
0: what you're saying is the fact that they are a little bit in extremis as artists makes it exciting for the listener.
1: Yes, I think so. It's just, you know, if that was like, if this piece were comfortable for everybody, I don't think it would have the same thrill.
0: Yeah. I wonder if maybe in those premieres, the singing wasn't awesome based on what you just described as the difficulty of it, yeah, which might have led maybe. to some of those critical opinions.
1: It's actually hard to know. I mean, obviously, none of us were there. And, you know, when I get my time machine, I'll travel back and see.
0: The, I think anyone listening can tell that the fourth movement is the thing that is the piece and but for many people. But there's 40
1: minutes of music before that. There's
0: 40 minutes of music before it. And the fourth movement is a world in and of itself. I mentioned before how it references the previous movements. Obviously, the inclusion of the chorus and the soloist was unique. Um, it is a baffling, progressive piece of art the fourth the fourth movement. But let's talk about the other movements, the way the the journey to that incredible finale. The first Sh- movement.
1: Sure, you know, this and let's let's take a sidebar first. This is late Beethoven right. we musicologists like to divide his works into three periods. Yeah. The late period is characterized by more extreme harmony for classical tonalities. Uh, edgy as we talked about some edgy or if you will, orchestration, uh, what else? Um, use of counterpoint that maybe wasn't so much of a part of Beethoven's earlier works. And also kind of um, tweaking the traditional forms of symphony. So if I want to just, before we get into this, I just want to sort of review or, you know, share for the first time, if, it, if it's not something you're familiar with, kind of what standard classical symphony was. Typically four movements. Yep. First symphony was, the first movement was an allegro. In what we call sonata form, which is a glorified, complicated ABA, right. A being a set of musical material, B being contrasting musical material, and then a return to some version of the original material, we could do a whole podcast on sonata um, allegro form. We could. We, well, we, we shall not. Yeah. Then the second You're welcome, movement everyone. was. <laughs> 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 the second movement was a slow movement. Right. Andante, and adagio, largo. One of those kind of more, you know. Uh, deeply felt movements. Then we would have a scherzo, which always was a form of a scherzo, and then a trio, which is contrasting material, and then a return to the scherzo, kind of in a fast, often a triple meter. And then the third movement, uh, the fourth movement, was some kind of return to an allegro. Not right. the same material that we've heard necessarily, but those were what we had. We had fast sonata form, slow scherzo. And Well, Beethoven, one of the first things he does, he's flipped the scherzo and the adagio, which was huge for symphony goers to take in. Right. But back to the first movement then. So there's your quick little – that's not the deep dive. That's the shallow paddle through symphony form. The opening of this symphony, to me, it's always like the cosmic – I'm going to sound very, very fancy now. It's like the cosmic material of the universe gathering in this tonally ambiguous opening that then explodes into the Big Bang. Oh,
0: there's definitely a dawn of time element yeah, to the exactly. way this symphony dawn of begins. Time. Absolutely.
1: It starts with this high open and fifth, open fifths yep. don't necessarily have a tonal character on and of themselves. So this is like D, A. It's the middle note that determines tonality, major or minor. Beethoven doesn't give us any of that for quite some time and then um, for several measures. And then after this slow introduction, we finally discover we're in D minor.
0: Right. It's open. It's elemental. It's, yeah. It's, it's music of the spheres, as you said.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, I, I said it was like dystopia moving to utopia. Yeah. That was kind of one of the thoughts. It's very much a piece of, of contrast. So the opening is the dark part of the contrast. And then as we get to our favorite fourth movement, the one we keep referencing, it gets to the happy right. ending, if you will.
0: He also takes harmonic and structural risks with the first movement Absolutely. that are interesting. And I, we we don't need to list them, but that was part of what made the late period the late period in terms of scholarly research. But it was also Beethoven testing things, trying things.
1: He Experimenting.
0: Also, he, was, he was a very experimental composer at the last part of his career.
1: He also blurred the lines, the sectional lines. In yeah. early classical symphonies, These the, the specific sections of this first movement in sonata form, and there's all kinds of fancy names for them, were very clear. But Beethoven blurred it. I remember I was even reviewing the symphony earlier today, and I was surprised when the material of the first section came back in that first movement because I wasn't ready to have it in my mind. So Beethoven surprised me with all of my exposure to much more progressive music. So imagine what he did to those people in 1824. They were just, their heads were exploding.
0: Totally. And their pens were exploding too. <laughs> well, as, we, yes. as we heard. But, <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the scherzo too. So what's what's unique and cool about the second movement, which as we noted, shouldn't be the second movement, but it is in this case.
1: Well, i really was struck by the folk nature of the contrasting section. I mean, the opening, the first, the thing that really stuck out to me, again, in my review, the, the thing that stuck out to me in the opening part of the scherzo was the timpani workout. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just... I just I imagine our principal timpani just, you know, that's yeah. his workout for the week. He doesn't need to do anything it's else. It's incredibly
0: athletic, this yeah. scherzo, for everyone in the orchestra, no doubt.
1: But then the contrasting tune really sounds like folk music, and I... I was reading something that kind of characterized it as heading us towards the common man so that when we got to that universal theme in the fourth movement, we had made it a sort of natural progression from this confused cosmos that arranges, has, and then the scherzo starts to help us get to something a little more organized, more organized humanity and society.
0: Absolutely. I think the scherzo is one of the most popular movements. Movements of the symphony, it gets used a lot in pop culture. Mm. We can reference that when we go through that later. But I, I, I think this movement is surprising in its position in the symphony. It's surprising in its energy because certainly compared to everything around it, it it's, it stands out as muscular and not necessarily intellectual. It's it's very earthy. This music, right. which I like a lot, I think
1: that's where the peasant exactly. quality comes out. It's just very. It's not cerebral at all.
0: Exactly, which is interesting to me that when the third movement comes, when the slow movement comes, you really need it. You've had the all the challenges, all the structural and harmonic and sort of uh, elemental aspects of the first movement lead into this muscular you know, big-shouldered, scared-so. And when you get to the third movement, that respite is really necessary. And the third movement is gorgeous, long melodies, just impossibly long melodies, great writing for winds. I will give people a signpost for this movement that is personal for me in that... Let's remember
1: that Jeff, in a former life, was a French horn player. I think
0: it was three former lives ago, but I was a horn player at one point, and the third movement of Beethoven 9 contains the only substantive fourth horn solo in the repertoire fourth horn in the horn section typically plays the lowest music the lowest tessitura as as carol would say and there's a very long very expressive Full range of the instrument solo for the fourth horn in the third movement. And it's a huge challenge. Every horn player in the world knows what I'm talking about. They're all starting to get flop sweats thinking about (laughs) having to do it in an audition because it's a real challenge. Full range of the horn, super expressive, and you're playing with winds the whole time. So there's lots of opportunities for great color. Just as you're listening to this piece think about the fourth horn player when you get to that movement and imagine what they're say going through for him, say a prayer for him or her exactly and like i said though the position of it is interesting because you know where it typically comes as a sort of palate cleanser after the first movement you have to go through quite a bit of music quite a bit of very demanding music before you get there and i think it's a great table setter for the last movement this slow this slow movement of beethoven 9
1: yeah it's really quite sublime yeah. as are many of his Slow movements, really. Absolutely. To be honest, yeah. So this, we're back to the cosmos, the exploding of cosmos. Then, kind of, when we get to the opening of the fourth movement, exactly. Aren't we? Yeah, we are. It's, it it's, super. Harkens back to movement
0: one. It does, and it also harkens back to the other movements. There's direct quotes in the in the opening of the fourth movement to the scherzo and to the third movement, and that's a technique that composers in later decades will use a lot. Right. Mahler certainly will do it. Dvorak did it a ton. He made an entire formal, you know, uh, construct out of doing that. And Beethoven, is it's one of the many completely revolutionary things he does with this piece. And I said before that I think this music presages um, Mahler more than it does Brahms. Brahms took the, the, the logical next step with his symphonies, but he didn't stretch all that much, really. Mahler just took the ninth and created an entire cycle out of Mm -hmm. the possibilities there. Mahler used singers in the second, third, eighth symphonies. He used a singer in the fourth symphony as well. But if Beethoven had not written this piece, I don't think we would have even had Mahler. It would have been a very different career path for him. Because I think that this music, Carol, was really the last bridge from the classical era to the romantic
1: Absolutely. I think he burned
0: it behind him, and there yeah. just wasn't <laughs> <There's>, anymore. It <laughs> well, I was love that. all looking forward after this. It was that. It was that forward-looking. It was that revolutionary for its time.
1: Yeah, I guess it ever. You know, you put it so succinctly, and that's really, really quite a profound way of looking at it. I love. I'm gonna. I'm gonna use that. The burn the bridge behind me. Steal it. Um, I want to do a little side note and explain. Some of you might be thinking we keep saying it's the first time to use vocals. With orchestra, and that's what, maybe what you heard, what we mean is the first time to put a vocal line or a vocal element in an actual thing called a symphony. Right. We know that there was Misa Solemnis in Beethoven and, and um, many large choral works that had orchestra. But as far as calling it a symphony and adding voices, this was the first time. It was.
0: I mean, Misa Solemnis, parts of that were premiered on the same concert as as this, this premiere. So yeah, that was definitely in the mix, and people were writing oratorios, and people were writing music for voice and orchestra. No question. But the first one to put it in In this purely abstract form known as the symphony it was beethoven and he did it here and it was outrageous to everyone as you saw by the comments i think the outrageous nature of his ambition is what those critics are really commenting about because it's certainly not the quality because about that they're just wrong
1: they are absolutely wrong
0: they're just flatly wrong
1: there's a couple of vocal moments i think before we we don't want to beat the horse of the fourth movement to death because many people are quite familiar with it, but I think it's really important to point out a few really, really striking moments. For instance, one of the opening moments of this is an instrumental recitative. Yeah. That then, when it comes back, is joined by the bass. Absolutely. And I think I always actually forget that we're going to get the instrumental iteration when I hear the music. The da 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 da. da I think the next thing I'm going to hear is the bass, and then I realize. The cellos and basses. You hear the bass they get section. To have the bass of the section orchestra. gets yeah. to have their moment.
0: Yeah, it's really, it's 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 really a two part recit. It's an orchestra recit that then turns into a bass, a solo bass voice recit. Right. So in, in that way, the very beginning of the fourth movement is looking back at the first three movements, but also looking forward. It's sort of, it's sort of um, uh, predicting material it's going to give singers in just a few minutes. I I love how out of time that music is at the beginning. It takes that concept, that elemental music of the Spears that we talked about at the beginning of the first movement, and just expands it even further. The guy was on a different plane.
1: I mean, genius slash demented. Totally. Hey, I just thought of something. Do you think that maybe he did the vocal recitative as the first vocal entrance to try to ease the audience into the idea that we were going to have voices? Maybe, it's cuz we don't get the full chorus until we've heard all the soloists in various things.
0: It comes quite late in the in the process of the piece and even late in the process of the of the fourth movement. Right. It doesn't start right away with chorus. It's not like Mahler 8 that's like chorus from the yeah. you know, from the first moment, you know. Mahler 2 is more like this. Right. It's very much at the end and he does the same thing. He sort of warms you up to the idea of a voice with orchestra in the previous movements. You might be onto something. I don't know.
1: It just was a thought I had. Yeah. Cuz we have the Bay and then we have more you know we have the first little winds uh, wind tune of the main tune that we're all expecting and then uh, soloists get it, chorus gets it. then the next big solo moment we have is the big Turkish March with the tenor. With the
0: tenor exactly you know I I don't want to I don't want to continue a conversation about this piece without referring back to some of the comments in, the critical mm-hmm. work that you mentioned before, many of them chose to riff on his deafness as a way of making their point about the music. And the story about him not being able to hear the applause, I think makes it clear that he heard nothing by that point. He was not hearing any of the music. And his job was to give the conductor tempe and then just to sit there and live in the vibrations Supervised. of this thing he created. It wasn't like... It wasn't like he heard it and then went deaf. He never heard a single note of this piece. I think that's a great tragedy. I think it's depressing to imagine that. And I'm sorry that so many critics thought that that was a good jumping off point for their commentary, because I think it's a little cruel to go there, but not nearly as cruel as the fact itself that of of all the millions of people, literally, that have gotten to enjoy an imprint themselves emotionally on this music he never got to hear a note of it that's in there too for me when I listen
1: why do you want to make me weep right now
0: I'm, I'm not trying to do that but <sighs> speaking of speaking of the millions <laughs> let's, let's talk about some of the pop culture yeah, uses this piece of this music. yeah
1: I mean there's there's historical there are pop culture references historical moments uh let's start with the more serious stuff this anthem let's call it an anthem the main tune absolutely if you needed that reminder, has kind of been become an anthem of unified humanity and also a protest anthem. And it's interesting because it actually comes out of the revolution, the French Revolution, and the revolutionary thoughts and then Beethoven's disappointment with Napoleon not following through on his promise Mm -hmm. to elevate the common man. So all of that's in this tune and in this poem. Those are all things that came out of the Enlightenment. So fast forward to the 20th century, there's so many instances where it's been used as a anthem of protest or celebration of revolution because revolution has not ended with the French Revolution in those. So I noticed, I, I saw that it was broadcast by students at Tiananmen Square. Yep. As an act of defiance. It, uh, backing up even more, uh, in the 20s and 30s, it was played regularly at uh, workers' concerts that uh, bef- during the Weimar era in Germany. And then eventually it was stopped by the Nazi regime. And then I think many of us who were alive and, you know, not babies in the 90s remember that Christmas Day concert at the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Where Bernstein conducted this piece after the fall of the wall at the Brandenburger Tour, the Brandenburg Gate, and they substituted Freude, which means joy with Freiheit, which yeah, means freedom. freedom. And I just get goosebumps just even saying that.
0: Yeah, there's some there's some thought that Schiller actually at one point wanted it to be owed right. to freedom, not owed to joy. So it wasn't just Bernstein manufacturing that. There's some thought that Schiller actually had that idea at one point himself. Do your own research about that. But I do think it's interesting that that um, that word makes so much sense to us now as a, as a substitute for joy.
1: It seems so natural. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning that some of the words that we hear in this piece are actually Beethoven's. He actually added, I think it's the words of the base recitative Yeah, are Beethoven's words that he used as a preamble to the words of Schiller. Yeah. So then in less elevated, high-minded pop culture, tell me about some of the things you've discovered.
0: So it's been used in movies, of course. Television shows, video games, you name it. Has Some anyone of the... thought
1: of Die Hard at this moment?
0: <laughs> no, no, it's yeah. yeah. That, but there's also other <laughs> the things. The greatest
1: Christmas movie ever made.
0: Totally. <laughs> and that is not up for debate. It is a Christmas movie. So internet, be quiet. It just is. But also Kubrick used it in Clockwork Orange. He used the Scherzo. It was used in Dead Poets Society. This one, I think, is the best pop culture fact about Beethoven. Can't wait. 9. The compact disc, when it was created... There was some discussion about what- For those
1: of you who are of a certain generation, this was yeah. a medium in which a digital physical medium that we used to share music. Yeah. A small disc.
0: I'm not going to tell you how old Carol is, but I'm yep. in my 50s. So that probably tells you why <laughs> I'm <laughs> okay, talking so about compact, the compact disc. disc. When the compact disc was, um, was created, there was some discussion amongst the technical people that were at the, at the center of that effort about how, what, the, what the max length should be. And the max length ended up being 74 minutes. And the purpose of that 74-minute length was that it needed to be able to include an entire performance without breaks of Beethoven 9. I think that's incredible.
1: And if you really want to know all the details, they they used the Herbert von Karajan recording yep. that existed at that time as their… As their baseline. Yeah, their baseline. Yep. It was like the bellwether, something like that. Yeah. Well, we're recording this just a few weeks before Halloween. I know where you're going. So let's um, let's let's get a little bit of a ghoulishness in here. So Beethoven passed away very shortly after this piece was composed, and this lore grew up in the next decades about the curse of the ninth. Mm-hmm. Composers were afraid to finish their ninth symphony and went through all sorts of gymnastics. To try to avoid writing that ninth symphony because some of them were convinced they would die if they wrote that ninth symphony.
0: So Beethoven famously started a tenth symphony, didn't finish it, died, and there, as you said, there came to be a belief that there was a curse for composers who finished a ninth symphony, that they wouldn't be able to write a tenth without dying. Mahler is the greatest example of the gymnastics you were referring to a moment ago because he wrote he wrote nine symphonies, but between the eighth and the ninth, wrote Das Lied von der Erde. Right?
1: Which everyone, I mean, there's no reason not to call that a symphony. It is
0: definitely a symphony. It is a
1: symphony number nine. It is. 8.5. Es-
0: especially the way Mahler saw the symphony. I mean, formally, structurally, all of that. Definitely a symphony. But he called it Dust Lead von Air the Song of the Earth to try to trick fate. Then he wrote his ninth symphony. Then he started a tenth and promptly died.
1: dun, dun.
0: <laughs> Same with Bruckner. Never got there. Wrote a ninth. That was the end. So it has happened with other composers, too. The list goes on. But the curse is something that I think, you know, obviously has outlived its usefulness right? as, as 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 medical. Um, right,
1: Shostakovich, what, how many did he end up with?
0: Fifteen. Uh, Fifteen. So yeah. he
1: got well past.
0: He did. So it's possible nine. to survive the curse, but it's still out there.
1: Yeah, I just thought that was um, – there was a whole – it was a, it was actually Halloween Post I found online that sort of enumerated all the composers that did their best to avoid yep. Beethoven's fate and the ones that sadly did not. Did not. No one escapes the curse of the Ninth Symphony.
0: All right, Carol, before we say goodbye, this is – I feel like we could do this for another hour. It's great discussion. And the reason it's great discussion is because it's great music. And you and I have talked – a lot this season off mic about war horses why we do them bohème is one and we had a discussion about bohème just a few episodes ago Um, why do we continue to play pieces like this as frequently as we do most orchestras if they can afford it would do beethoven 9 every year
1: it's like opera companies and carmen
0: exactly or bohème they would do it every year if they could the The rotation is probably around three years based on the expense of getting soloists in a sure. chorus on stage, but they would do it every year if they could and audiences would go. People in, the, people in the company, in the orchestra, in the chorus might grow weary of that kind of frequency, but it seems like the public does not. What is it about these pieces, these war horses, I'm doing air quotes, that keeps them alive and so fresh for people?
1: I think that a truly great piece outlasts any number of repetition there's always something new to discover I talk about in operas, you always have a different cast. You always have a different director, even if it's the same physical production. And it's, you know, we'll do it in November. It's the same Utah Symphony. There's some, but there's some personnel that have changed since the last time we performed. And so those people are going to be able to put their own stamp on the big orchestral moments. We have a different conductor who's bringing a very passionate vision. So I think it's just understanding that a great piece only improves with Additional, I I don't know. It's It's, cumulative,
0: I think, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, Our
0: love for it is cumulative. It's based on those repeated hearings.
1: I've never gotten to a point where I'm thinking, there are some pieces that I don't really necessarily need to hear as often as they get done. But Beethoven 9, I just... There's nothing like that visceral thrill when the big tune comes in with everybody singing it. You've had a hint of it, a little presence of it in the winds, and then the explosion of sound yeah. happens. And yeah. uh, you could listen to it on recording, and it's amazing. But when you're in the concert hall, the actual feeling, physical feeling of those sound waves coming through your body is unlike anything. And those moments are un, unmatched.
0: I think you just said the most important thing. And it's that pieces like this are at their best live. There's nothing like sitting in the hall while Beethoven 9 is happening around you. And I think the fact that it is such an incredibly physical listening experience bears repetition. I think that just that alone, if the music weren't great, just the spectacle and the immersive experience would be worth hearing multiple times. It just so happens that the music is also great. Right. And, and the
1: poetry is universal.
0: The poetry is universal. There's, I hear new things in Beethoven. I mean, I've heard Beethoven 9 a lot in my career. A lot. And I hear new stuff every time. And it's not because I'm in the business. It's not because I speak this language fluently. It's just because it's that great. And you get a good person on the podium. You get a wonderful orchestra, wonderful soloist, as you said. You don't have to change many ingredients between hearings. Just a couple of them opens new doors and windows, I think, in the experience.
1: Absolutely. So when I'm finished here, I'm going to go back and finish listening to the Klemper recording, which was what I was reviewing this morning. But I want to encourage all of you to look for your local symphony schedules and see. I imagine for most of you listening that you'll have a performance of Beethoven 9 in the next couple of years because we're coming up to that 200th anniversary of that amazing premiere. So if you can get to a live performance, don't miss your
0: chance. And if you're listening to us in Salt Lake, please be sure to go to utahsymphony.org to check out how to get tickets for that performance here. Thank you everyone, though, who's listening at home and on the go for being with us today. If you haven't yet, it really helps us when you subscribe rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get new listeners. Be sure to visit USUO.org for information about this and all upcoming performances, and we hope to see you soon, maybe at Beethoven 9 at a live performance. Until next time, I'm Jeff Counts.
1: And I'm Carol Anderson. Thanks for listening.
0: The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony, Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.